0: is seriously, hugely at variance with the accepted ideology of capitalism, which says that as the pie gets bigger, we all get a bigger slice. One of, those great, one of the great theorists of modern capitalism, um, one of the great minds in the American mainstream media, Rush Limbaugh, said, <laughs> said it isn't zero-sum, it's more for all of us. And he repeated that old axiom that you hear. A rising tide lifts all boats. What Do you know Perenti's axiom? It is a rising tide drowns many people. It is zero sum. It is. More for the landlords means less disposable income for the renters. More for the owners means less for the workers. And conversely, the other way around. More for the worker means less for the owner. If I, as an owner, has to spend money on stupid, ridiculous things like wage increases, occupational safety, environmental protection, pensions. The more I have to spend on those kind of things, every dollar I got to spend on that is one less dollar for me. It is so zero-sum, oh man, do they think it's zero-sum all the time. All of this is also at variance with the established ideology that capitalism creates prosperity, not poverty. Look at North America. Look at capitalist North America. Look at the remarkable prosperity. Look at the remarkable prosperity of capitalist Western Europe. The capitalist countries are the prosperous ones. Uh Uh-huh. That's a very selective view of capitalism, isn't it? Could I invite you to look at capitalist countries? Look at capitalist Nigeria and capitalist Mexico and capitalist Philippines and capitalist Thailand, El Salvador, Bolivia, and go on with another hundred or so countries where children live in disease and illiteracy and poverty and malnutrition. Those are capitalist countries. They're never thought of or discussed in that way. But they are really pure capitalist countries. They're capitalist countries where democracy has not made any inroads in the class struggle to speak of. Most of the world is capitalist and getting more capitalist. And most of the world is poor and getting poorer. The third world is not underdeveloped. It's overexploited. It's underdevelopment... <clears throat> It's underdevelopment and immense poverty in shanty towns are not an original historical condition. These people know how to fish. They don't need you to come in with your technical advice. They need access to the shorelines and they need the web and they need nets and, and boats to fish. They know how to farm. They need land. They know how to work. They need workable, decent paying jobs. Let's return to the US. Who are the wealthy in the United States? Well, we hear it's the top 20%. The top quintile, the wealthiest quintile, or the top 20%, the top fifth, are the wealthy. Whenever they discuss these things and they say, incomes are getting more unequal because 20 years ago, the top fifth was making 12 times more than the bottom fifth. And now, the top 5th is making 14 times more than the bottom 5th. Well, let's stop playing with those kind of silly statistics, okay? The top 5th, to be in the top 5th, all you have to make is $65,000 a year. And you're in the top 5th, so you're one of the rich? No. 000, if you make 100000 a 100000 is a very nice salary in this country. I've never seen it. But um, 100,000, you would be in the top 4% in the country. But that doesn't make you rich. You're not the rich. You can be snuffed out of your job. And people who are making 100K have experienced that. I've also read one place that in the last 20 years, the top 20% increased their income by $27,000 in 20 years. What is that? This, is, this has nothing to do with wealth. Let's talk about real wealth. Let's talk about that fraction of 1% that owns the lion's share of everything in this society that there is to own. When I talk about wealth, I'm talking about the Morgans and the Mellons and the Murdochs, the Huntingtons, the Harrimans, the Hunts, the Rockefellers and DuPonts, the Bill Gateses and the Warren Buffets, and the Waltons, don't forget the Waltons. Uh, there's four of them every year when they show America's richest people, there are these four and they, each of them got 20 billion each. They're the ones who own Walmart. Walmart, and they, and they got so rich with remarkable technological innovations such as working middle-aged women at entry-level wages and working them in, with no overtime, working them so they couldn't, can't even afford a, a place to live. Half of them live out of their vans or double up with their mothers or whatever else. Or or daughters, etc. The spread between the Waltons and the bottom fifth is not 12 to 1 or even 14 to 1. The spread is more like 80,000 to 1. Do the numbers. Okay, now it's at this point or really much earlier than this point that we hear someone come in and start to talk about mom-and-pop capitalism. The small business that somebody starts and he hires some people and they work for him and he creates jobs and they perform service. It's usually done in this nostalgic sentimental way. The uh, entrepreneurial ethic of going out there with an idea and doing this and he struggles hard. I'm not today talking about the entrepreneurial mythology, okay? I'm talking about the transnational monopoly finance capital reality. Mom and pop small businesses are not calling the tunes. They are the squirrels that dance among the elephants. Lenin was right when he said, 10 million small businesses count for nothing. A few giant cartels count for everything. What do you mean? Squirrels dancing, by the way, squirrels dancing among elephants have a a very low life expectancy. (laughs) And... and, and hundreds of mom-and-pop businesses get stamped out. Hundreds get stamped out every week. Well, don't they make a modest contribution? No, they don't make a modest contribution. They make a huge contribution. All the net, all the net increase in jobs in this economy comes from small and medium-sized businesses or from the public sector all the net increase in jobs the net increase in new jobs the net growth the net growth in jobs after you count for downsizing outsourcing layoffing hiring new people opening a factory here but closing one there and all the net increase contributed by corporate America is zero zilch nada let's let's look at the Waltons again what is it what is the imperative that propels wealthy individuals, I mean multi-billionaires we're talking about, and their wealthy corporate financial organizations. What is, it, what is it that makes Sammy run? It's the desire, the dedication, nay, even the necessity to accumulate still more wealth. As Marx said in volume one, accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. You've got to get more. Why? Why would people who have billions of dollars, who have more money than they know what to do with, who have more money than they could spend in utter opulence and luxury in ten lifetimes, why do they go out there to make still more as if their crust of bread depended on it? There are several reasons, I think. First, I really do believe that wealth is addictive, that the haves become the have-mores, and the have-mores want to become the have-it-alls. There's only one thing that every plutocratic class in every society throughout history has ever wanted and that's everything. All the best herds, all the best lands, all the best resources, all the civilities and comforts and services of civil society While paying none of the costs. They want it all. They have a lot, they can get more, and they want it all. So, this is the way it goes. Fortune whets the appetite for more fortune. You can't take it with you, but in a way you can. There was a corny comedian back in the fifties, very popular then T V comedian named Milton Burl. Many of you many I can see many of the students here have never never seen Milton Burl, you've never seen Milton Burl perform. Consider yourself lucky, but um, but he did say one thing which I thought was is very apropos. He once one of his jokes was he says, If I can't take it with me, I'm not going. And, and there's and there's something of the psychology in this in 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 the very in the ver, in the very rich plutocrats the thought of breaking up your estate for instance breaking up your estate into four smaller parts to give to your four children is just more than you can bear you build this empire estates are things that you add to you don't subtract and cut them up you build this empire you want it to, be kept together. Not only that, it's dangerous for the family's standing and the family's name to break it up into smaller estates and little, and little things. So for its standing, this estate has to stand. And so the, there was this curious invention called primogeniture, where everything, all the family fortune and wealth was given to the oldest son. And the younger sons had to make do with the uh, top echelon appointments in the church or the government or the military. And the daughters, hopefully, they could marry well or be sent off to the nunnery. So, in a way, you are keeping all this wealth. You're not not quite taking it with you, but you are immortalizing it to secure the family name and fortune, though not necessarily the well-being of all family members. Another reason for relentless accumulation is less psychological and more systemic, and it has to do with the corporate capitalist system itself which requires constant expansion even in a monopolistic oligopoly with a few corporate giants that dominate a field and, and, and mergers are the rule and you know today you see we see now mergers you don't see a giant corporation swallowing up smaller companies you see giant corporations swallowing another giant corporation i mean Chevron and Texaco and you know Unocal and Union Carbide I mean huge things cannibalizing each other So, even in this monopolistic corporate cartel capitalism, it's a constantly insecure and indeterminate feel. Markets change, new competitors with new technologies enter the fray, investments backfire. To remain in one place, to remain with one segment of the market, is to lose ground, not just competitively, but eventually, absolutely. Those companies in New England that stayed purely regional, nobody remembers their names today for the most part, unless it's a, a, a particular service industry that's fixed in a particular region for certain, for certain reasons. Another reason for accumulation is that wealth, even great wealth, is never totally or absolutely secure. How do you protect what you have from the following kinds of dangers? Wealth can get expropriated, it can get plundered by competing forces, by revolution, insurrection, invasion, looting, It could be lost through devaluation or failure to reify or realize its value. What if all my money is in Confederate bonds and the Confederacy loses the Civil War? There were people this happened to. A whole class, in effect, was snuffed out, although they actually kept control of most of their land. But they lost immense amounts of capital. This capital happened to be in the form of human beings. Hundreds of millions of dollars in capital with the emancipation of slaves. Also, remember the key instrument of finance capital is money. I was taught in school that money is a medium of exchange. And that has a very nice neutral sounding tone to it. Money can be used for good, it can be used for bad. You can use it to build a hospital or bribe an official or, uh, or, or bomb a village. But money historically in class society becomes a means of abstracting and mobilizing and accumulating wealth. It gives fluidity and and abstraction and mobility to wealth.